right, let's continue to worship as Cody prayed earlier by turning in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 10. If you need a copy of God's Word, just get the attention of one of the ushers and they will certainly get one into your hands. Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10. We're on the downhill side of our study of Revelation for the purpose of knowing what's to come and holding fast. That's the reason for this book and the reason for our entire study of it. To know what's to come to the extent that we can and to hold fast. To hold fast in the midst of it and to hold fast for it. Hold fast in the midst of it because of the difficulties that are coming down the pipeline and hold fast for it because of the glories that are coming down the pipeline. It's both and, praise God, for that. Know what to expect and hold fast. And what we're about to see this morning does both. It adds to our information about the future and it confirms a promise that encourages us to stay the course. It confirms a promise. A promise that God made, catch this, all the way back in Genesis. That's right. That's right. This passage in Revelation about the distant future confirms a promise God made at the beginning of time. It's that big. It's found in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, God is speaking to Satan and he says, this is right after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. He says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, that's Eve. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that's Eve's offspring, he shall bruise your head Again, God speaking to Satan. He, Eve's offspring, shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. It's the first hint of the gospel. What theologians call the, call the protoevangelion or the protoevangelium in Latin. It doesn't matter. It's, it's the hint of the first gospel. That is the, the first hint of good news after the fall of the world into sin by Adam and Eve's rebellion, Satan's temptation. You see, because of Satan's part in Adam and Eve's sin, God said that there would be hostility and hatred between those who follow Satan and those who follow Jesus, Eve's offspring. But in the end, according to this promise, in the end, he would deliver a death blow to Satan. Eve's offspring would, who we know is Jesus. He would deliver a death blow to Satan. That is, he would bruise his head. And this passage in Revelation is the fulfillment. This passage right here in these three, four verses, seven to ten, is the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of that promise, confirming that what was promised in Eden will be accomplished right after the end of the millennium. You follow along with me, verses 7 to 10. I'll read it through and then we'll start to unpack it. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan, this is John, the Apostle John, as he's relaying to us, putting on paper his vision of these 
end-time events. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Promise made, promise kept. Despite the fact that in most of our Bible reading, this is toward the end of our, you know, read through the year in the Bible, or read through the Bible, read through the year in the Bible, read through the Bible in a year, or read through the Bible in two years, what it is. And by the time we get to these last chapters, we're like, just get me to the to the chapter 22, and I can be done with this, and I can check it off, and I can say, like I did it, accomplished, which is which is good. Don't get me wrong. Awesome, awesome. But not only for that reason do we tend to just fly over these verses, but because of what these verses speak of as well. They're like hard to understand sometimes. The bottom line is, a promise was made, and John tells us the promise is going to be kept. But not before Satan's last hurrah. One final effort on his part to inflict a blow and undermine God's plan. And it starts when the millennium ends. Satan's last hurrah starts when the millennium ends. Look at verse 7. First phrase. When the thousand years are ended, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Pretty straightforward. The games don't start until the millennium ends. Beginning with the release of Satan. Beginning with the release of Satan, his release from captivity. Satan's last hurrah starts when the millennium ends, beginning with his release. That too is straightforward. When the thousand years are ended, verse 7, you're going to want to keep your finger on the text, as always. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. It's just like John said back at the end of verse 3. You remember that from two weeks ago? Check it out there, the end of verse 3. After that, after the thousand years, he must be, he, Satan, must be released for a little while. Must be. You see it? Must be. Indicating what? Indicating that it's part of God's plan. His plan, among other things, to fulfill his promise. His plan to show that time changes nothing. If God said it, God will do it. Time changes nothing, no matter how little time or how much time has passed. Not only that, but this must be regarding God's plan is intended to show that time will mean nothing in the heart of Satan. The passing even of a thousand years where he's in captivity and he's unable to do anything but, but think. And it will change not one thing about his heart. Once evil, always evil. A thousand years of captivity isn't going to reform him. And it isn't going to make him better. It's going to make him worse. It's going to harden him all the more. In fact, he's going to be released to deceive the world. 
to deceive the world. Verse 8, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out, John says, to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. If, if the sentence ended there, or that portion ended with deceive the nations, that in and of itself would indicate the world. But the fact that he ends that are at the four corners of the earth certainly confirms it. The four corners of the earth, meaning the whole planet. He's going to deceive, Satan is, when he's released at the end of the millennium, he's going to deceive or try to deceive every person on the earth. Not the believers, not the believers, but the unbelievers. Believers will be in glorified bodies, remember, and untouchable at that point. But unbelievers, still in their sin and hardness of heart, are very deceivable. Just like now. Unbelievers descended over time from those who came through the tribulation and are born with a sin nature just like us. As now we are born with a sin nature, so then unbelievers will be born with a sin nature. Believers, on the other hand, during the millennium and immediately following it, believers will neither marry nor be given in marriage, Jesus said. Matthew twenty-two, thirty. So only unbelievers will procreate and populate the earth during the millennium. That's the implication when you put all of those things together. Only the unbelievers will procreate and populate the earth during the millennium. And in the end, Satan will try to deceive their offspring. He'll, die, he'll try to deceive their offspring, the offspring of the unbelievers, making them his offspring. His followers, deceived to the core. And the purpose of that is to stir them up to fight. In other words, he's going to deceive the world and gather them for battle. Gather them for battle. That's the next part we find here. Verse 8 again. Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, here it is, to gather them for battle, gather them for war, gather them to fight. That much is clear, isn't it? Gog and Magog, on the other hand, not so much. That's about as clear as some of our conversations with our grandkids these days. Especially so like the one who gets on FaceTime with us and as soon as he sees us, as soon as his mom puts the phone to them, to him, and, and he sees us on FaceTime, he immediately says, gog, 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 with his palm upraised next to his face. First of all, who in the world taught him to do that? He, he's like one year and a few months. Gog, 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 gog. And we're like, dude, what is going on here? Are you speaking in tongues? We, we don't interpret. We don't know what you're saying. And then it dawned on me. He's not speaking in tongues. He's quoting Revelation. Grandson of mine that he is. He's a child prodigy. <laughs> gog, 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 gog. <laughs> but it didn't take long to realize that he was actually looking for our dog. Our dog. He just couldn't say it right. So he yelled gog instead. And he kept yelling it until we put our stinking dog on FaceTime. The things you do as a grandparent 
Oh, sweetie, you want to see our dog? Oh, here's our dog. Isn't that dog so cute? Gug, 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 gug. I say that because Gog and Magog is probably, probably as meaningful to you as our grandson's gibberish, complete with the palm upraised. So let me see if I can sort it out. Gog and Magog is a reference to a prophecy made by Ezekiel in the Old Testament. It's a reference to a prophecy made by Ezekiel, a prophecy in chapters 38 and 39 that Ezekiel made around 580 B.C., about Gog of the land of Magog. That's how he puts it. Gog of the land of Magog, Ezekiel 38.2. And it's a prophecy as he goes on to lay it out in the next two chapters there. It's a prophecy about a vast army who would attack Israel of old and be destroyed, vindicating God's people and God's power for good. Ezekiel even speaks of God raining fire and sulfur on them, just like we read. The problem is, it's never been fulfilled. Ezekiel's prophecy of Gog and Magog. It's never been fulfilled, not even partially. Plus, we don't even know who Gog is. Don't. Despite the efforts of some to make a case for Russia or Ukraine or Turkey or all the above or, or whatever nation happens to fit the, you know, the newspaper event on that particular week or month or day. Despite people who try to make a case for them, it's just not clear. In fact, most Jewish interpreters from the time of Christ and before thought that that unknown nature of Gog was intentional. They thought that, that Gog is a future unknown leader to be revealed in a future messianic age. And they didn't even have the New Testament. They thought that, that Gog was intentionally nebulous to us because he was not going to be revealed, whoever it was, leader of the nations, leader of Magog. They thought it was intentional to be revealed, revealed in some future messianic age. So if they didn't know who it was within a few centuries of Ezekiel, it's a bit arrogant, I think, to say we know a few millennia later. Not only that, but the characterization of Gog as a rebellious leader with a rebellious people led them to use Gog and Magog as a derogatory expression for any rebellious people. Gog and Magog, they would say, referring to people who were sinful and rebellious and therefore they're destined for destruction. They're Gog and Magog. They wouldn't say it lightly, but forthright, they're Gog and Magog. Sinful, rebellious, and destined for destruction. It was a, it was a phrase, it was a euphemism that they used in religious circles back in the days of Jesus and before. And I think John is doing the same thing here in Revelation 20. Two things, actually. First, I think he's referring to the unbelieving masses at the end of the millennium as rebellious and destined for wrath. They're Gog and Magog. I think he's picking up on that phraseology from his time. And second, 
I think that he's saying that this is the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy. An attack on all God's people. Gog, 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 and Gog. Emphasizing his point that Satan's going to deceive the world and gather them for battle. I think that's what's going on here when we find these three words, Gog and Magog. What's more, it says that their number, these masses of Gog and Magog, their number is like the sand of the sea. You see it there, very next phrase, last part of verse 8? Their number is like the sand of the sea. And so Satan is going to deceive the world and gather them for battle in vast numbers. Vast numbers. An uncountable number like the sand of the sea. That's the idea, is it not? That when you think of the sand of the sea, do you think of it as something that you can count? Give, just give me a little bit of time and I'll get it all figured out. I mean, I, I've seen scientists, they try to uh, estimate the number of grains of sand uh, that we have here on planet Earth. And it's some kajillions of kajillions to the kajillion power sort of deal. Like as an infinite number almost. The idea of the sand of the sea, a number like that, is that it would be a, a vast, uncountable number. And no wonder, no wonder, these masses that Satan would gather to come against God's people in vast numbers, with the unprecedented peace and prosperity of the millennium that, that just transpired, thousand years or some very, very long time, with the unprecedented peace and prosperity of that time, it's likely that a baby boom would ensue. Likely that a baby boom would follow on the heels of such, or in the midst of such unprecedented peace and prosperity. Leading to a world of people who reject Jesus in vast numbers. Even though he's right in front of them, in the flesh. You say, how in the world could that be? How in the world could somebody reject Jesus when he's smack dab in front of them? How, how could that happen? The same way it happened when Jesus walked the earth the first time, 2,000 years ago. There were hordes upon hordes of people who rejected him despite the fact that he was right in front of them in the flesh. It's happened before. It's going to happen again. In fact, I think that everyone will reject Jesus in the millennium. I think that's the implication of an uncountable number here, like the sand of the sea. I think everyone in an unglorified body will be deceived in the millennium and will follow Satan at the end of it when he gathers them to come against the saints. In other words, I don't think anyone will be saved in the millennium. I, I think, I think that's right. But I could be wrong. I could be completely wrong about that. And therefore I hold very loosely to it because such a vast number doesn't necessarily mean every single person. A number like the sands of the sea doesn't mean every last piece of sand of the sea necessarily, technically speaking. It could just mean a vast number or the vast majority. It doesn't have to mean all. And so I, 
I could be wrong about thinking that no one is going to be saved in the millennium, in the millennium and that everyone is going to follow Satan. In fact, some people believe that unbelievers will be saved in the millennium. And I can see that to some extent. And I would absolutely love for that to be true. Oh, how I would love for that to be true. And in fact, I hope that I'm wrong about this. But it's largely an argument from silence. To say that unbelievers are going to be saved during the millennium, it's just an argument for, from silence. There's no indication of that. There, there's no repercussion of that or result of that. We don't find out how they would somehow get their glorified body. And, you know, just like we get ours when Jesus returns at the beginning of the millennium. There's just nothing. It's an argument from silence. But maybe they would appeal to scriptures like 2 Peter 3.9. You know it. You know that God is patient, not wishing that any should perish. You might conclude from that that the millennium is God's final effort and final offer of patience and that some people will take him up on it. Maybe. On the other hand, thinking that people won't come to Christ and can't is 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 10 that says this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Here it is. They, those who don't know God, those who don't embrace the gospel, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when... They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. The day unbelievers are destined for hell, this seems to imply, the day unbelievers are destined for hell to suffer the punishment of eternal destruction is the day of Christ's return. It doesn't happen immediately right then, but it eventually does. And that's the day that it's determined. Which is at the end of the great tribulation before the millennium even begins. Implying, possibly, that the few who make it through the great tribulation into the millennium and those who are descended from them in the millennium are destined for hell as well. I think. And if that doesn't sound fair to you, that nobody will come to Christ during the millennium and they can't come to Christ during the millennium because they've been destined for hell, if that doesn't sound fair to you, remember that fair is for nobody to be saved. Not you, not me, not anybody. That's fair. Fair is that we would get exactly what we deserve now and then, which makes the grace of God all the more amazing and all the more precious. I hope the thought of that, of, of God's vengeance on those who don't believe, makes the grace of God all the more precious for you and all the more amazing. It's part of the very argument that the Apostle Paul lays out in Romans 9 through 11. 
that he has destined some for destruction and others not. Why? So that he would be glorified in his grace toward those who are not destined for it. Either way, whether people can or can't come to Christ in the millennium, whether they will or won't, Satan is going to deceive vast, vast numbers. And last here is the purpose of it all. And that is to overcome the saints. Satan's last hurrah starts when the millennium ends, beginning with his release to deceive the world, gather them for battle in vast numbers to overcome the saints. Verse 9. They marched up this vast number of deceived unbelievers They marched up over the broad plain of the earth, as John recounts his vision, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. The camp and city, I think, are two ways of referring to the same thing. The community of believers, the church, with the beloved city probably referring to Jerusalem to symbolize the heart of our faith and the reign of Christ, the lordship of Christ. I think that's what Jerusalem is symbolizing here. Not speaking of Jerusalem literally, that, that the, the masses of the world are going to come against the city per se, but it's going to come against the saints, symbolized by the heart of our faith and the reign and lordship of Jesus in this reference to Jerusalem. While the camp probably symbolize our, symbolizes our posture of defense, defense against such an onslaught from the hordes of Satan. Like an army encamps encamps about a city to protect it. I think that that's what's going on here with the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Two ways of referring to the church, the community of believers, glorified as we are, having reigned with Christ in the millennium for a thousand years. And Satan and his lackeys are going to come against us. That's the point. The world under his deceptive sway will come against us to destroy our heart and soul. They'll come against us to overcome our rule and reign, benevolent as it will be with Jesus. A final effort in a long list of efforts down through the history of redemption where Satan will in a last ditch try to snuff us out and prove Jesus wrong. That the gates of hell really will prevail. That's Satan's last hurrah here. It's to prove Jesus wrong, ultimately wrong, when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Satan's going to have one last ditch effort to say, if it kills me, I'll prove you wrong. And it will. Because nothing could be further from the truth. What God promises, he does. He fulfills. Which makes this not the end of the end, but it makes this the beginning of the end. And in fact, that's the next main point from this text. Satan's last hurrah starts when the millennium ends, and it ends when God intervenes. 
It ends Satan's last-ditch effort to inflict a defeating blow, nip at his heels. So sorry about that. His last-ditch effort to bring things to his end instead of God's beginning. So the last part of verse 9, they surrounded the saints, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. God's going to intervene. God's going to intervene. Make no mistake. He's going to intervene just like he always intervenes. That's not to say that God, you know, sits back and merely observes most of the time, sipping tea and eating bonbons, and, and then every now and then when he so and still desires or when we really, really need it, he inserts himself in. That's not to say that at all. He's not, by and large, passive. He's not just a watchmaker. He's a watchkeeper. So involved in the affairs of our world that the Bible says, in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. He absolutely has the whole world in his hands. And he works, the Bible says, he works all things, all things, according to the purpose of his will. And so God is constantly at work. The furthest thing from passive and just sitting back and every now and then inserting himself into our affairs in order to make sure that the ship stays on the right course. Nothing could be further from the truth. He's on the ship. He's steering it. He's propelling it. He's keeping it afloat. And every other analogy you can possibly think of. It's just that his constant work is sometimes more obvious than it is others. His constant work in our lives, his constant work in our church, his constant work in our world. Sometimes it's more obvious and more miraculous. Like he intervenes, when he intervenes at the 11th hour to save the day and magnify his glory. Hello? It's exactly what's going on here. This is the epitome of an 11th hour salvation. This is the epitome of a deathbed salvation. He doesn't just do it in our lives personally sometimes. He's going to do it in our entire world. He's going to intervene and save the day. He's going to save the day and accomplish his purpose. He's going to save the day and deliver his people. It happened in the past. It happened countless times in the past. You've read it in the scriptures. It's happened in our church when God has intervened in a miraculous way, and I'm not just saying it, he intervenes in a miraculous way, and he saves the day, and has saved the day. Like when he provides funds when we're out of funds. When he makes provision for something that, man, we've been told no on countless times. Think the parking lot here next door to us with Midland or Elanders. I consider it a miraculous intervention of God that we're able to park there. Because we were able to do it and then we were told no when it was bought by Landers, a Swedish company. And, and then after four or five years, they finally said yes again. And it wasn't because we had some sort of bells and whistles on when we asked. It's because God intervened. 
and showed his favor in the eyes of man. Oh, that he would continue to do so. It's happened in the past. It's happened in our church's intervention to save the day. It's happened in your life. Oh, that you would count your blessings more and more, that we would count our blessings more and more individually and in our families, marking the times that God has intervened when it's so obvious it can't be explained in some other way. You know what I'm talking about? You got something in mind in your life? It's how he works, isn't it? It's happened in your life. It's happened in our church. It's happened in the past, and it's going to happen in the end of the millennium because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Huh. He's the same. Praise you, Lord. He's going to intervene, which means Satan and his offspring are not going to succeed because of all things, God's going to intervene with fire from heaven. Fire from heaven. Now, I'm pretty sure that you've not seen that in your life. Heaven in mind. But you're going to see it in your life at the end of the millennium. That's what verse 9 says. Fire came down from heaven. See it? Fire came down from heaven. Now, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I don't think it means bombs and missiles, as, as some people are kind of want to try to explain and bring the supernatural into the natural and so on. I don't think it means bombs and missiles. I think heaven means heaven directly from God. Like what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. This isn't the first time. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? God rained fire from heaven. God intervened. God did away with the rebellious masses. Or how about on Mount Carmel when fire came down from heaven and burned up the altar and everything on it, including the water that was around it, having been soaked multiple times over in the midst of a drought. You think God was trying to show us something? Tell us something? Or, or, or what about the time when James and John, the very same John who was writing this, by the way, what about the time when James and John encountered that uncooperative Samaritan village and they said to the Lord, quote, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> I cannot wait to ask the Apostle John, did you have that in mind when the Holy Spirit revealed this to you to put it on paper, when, when he gave you this vision of the end times? Like, I gotta I, I got know, I gotta know. I have to think, I have to think that it was in his mind and heart. I have to think that he was like, oh man, did I get that wrong. And this is it. It really is going to happen. But thank the Lord in God's time so that so, so many millions of people between the uncooperative village of Samaria and now could be saved and enter into the joy with him. I, I got to believe. Whatever the case, I think heaven means heaven and fire means fire. And while it's not going to be the first time, it is going to be the last. Because God's intervention is going to destroy those in rebellion. His intervention is going to destroy those in rebellion. Fire came down from heaven, verse 9, and consumed them, destroyed them, game over. You say, man, that sounds harsh. 
And you're right. You're right. Fire coming down from heaven, from God, to consume people, to destroy them. As many as the sands of the seashore. That is harsh. But that's exactly what they deserve. Especially in light of their blatant rebellion on the heels of such peace and prosperity. Such blatant rebellion on the heels of the presence of Jesus in the flesh. It's exactly what they deserve. And but for the grace of God, it would be exactly what every single one of us deserves. After so much blessing for so long, their behavior here at the end of the millennium is like an undisciplined three-year-old who throws a fit in the middle of his toy room. Ungrateful to the core. Sorry if this brings a little PTSD to you parents of young kids. The three-year-old ungrateful to the core and lashing out at anything and anyone. That, that's what this is like. Or maybe their opposition is backlash against the rule and reign of us, the rule and reign of believers, benevolent as it was during the millennium. Maybe they, maybe they hate us for it. And you can see why. Even more so than now, as we are the aroma of death to those who are perishing and the aroma of life to those who believe. To those who are perishing, though we treat them with the kindness of Jesus, we are the aroma of death to them, and it's not unlikely that they would hate us for, us, for it. Especially as we would oppose the sin either in their lives or in the culture that they would advocate or the falsehoods that they would perpetuate. There's nothing new under the sun. It's just going to be more and more blatant. Whatever the case, it's quite the commentary on the human heart, don't you think? That after so much blessing for so long, people are still prone to rebel. In fact, I think that that's one of the reasons for Satan's last hurrah. And one of the reasons that we're told about it here in Revelation 20. It's to show the evil of man's heart and the depths of depravity beyond a shadow of doubt. Confirming for all time that the condemnation and destruction of those in rebellion is completely deserved. But for the grace of God, there go we. And so I hope and pray and have prayed that you would embrace that grace if you haven't already, even right now. The condemnation and destruction is deserved, and the same is true of the condemnation of Satan. God will intervene, last thought here, and banish Satan forever. He'll intervene and banish him forever. Verse 10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan's followers will be destroyed, and Satan himself will be thrown in the lake of fire, another name for hell, as we've talked about before. Hell, where he will remain forever and ever in constant torment. You know what all that means? From the first word of verse 7 to the last word of verse, verse 10. 
It means we need not worry. We need not worry about Satan's release. We need not worry about Satan's deception. We need not worry about Satan's attack. We need not worry about God's destruction of those who participate. No worries. Absolutely no worries. Victory in Jesus, my Savior, forever. Forever. His protection is perfect and never ends. Our future is certain and never in doubt. And his promise is sure, including his promise to deal a death blow to Satan all the way back at the beginning of time. He's a promise maker and a promise keeper. We need only hold fast to see it happen. Let's pray. Lord, these truths are so amazing and so far beyond our reality. They're, they're hard to imagine sometimes, God. They're, they're hard to get our minds and hearts around, and especially with the uncertainties of it. And, and so I pray, Lord, that you would not let us be distracted in our thinking by the uncertainties, the things that may or may not be, the, the things that are fuzzy. But I pray, God, that you would impress the certainties on our heart and soul and that you would use them to help us hold fast to help us hold fast today in our walk with you and tomorrow and certainly until the day we die or, or you return, whatever comes first. God, use them that way. Help us to take your word to heart and use it to fill our souls and sustain our faith once and for all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.